These past few days, the world has erupted in protest with the killing of black individuals in the hands of white folks in the U.S. states of Kentucky, Georgia, and Minnesota. This has led to an outpouring of emotions with men and women of all colors taking polarizing positions on this very complex subject and issue of race and race relationships. Some side with the police, others with the protesters, and even still others siding with those who are looting and rioting. Some see this issue through the lenses of systemic racism that blacks in America have had to endure through the centuries, while others simply focus on the good that police officers do for the community, not painting the police with one broad stroke when there are a few bad apples in the group. People are shouting through various methods of communication, such as social media and protests, but no one is really listening because of entrenched biases and opinions. And at the end of the day, it further divides families and friends who have differing perspectives and opinions because no one really wants to dialogue. We forget it's okay to be outraged and demand justice for the murder of black men and in the same way to also support good police officers while also condemning looting and rioting. Let me just say that racism is condemned in the Bible. God created all people in His image. Jesus loved all equally and died for all equally. As Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, For He Himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Paul further writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 25 to 26, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Racism has no place in the church. Racism should not be practiced by any individual who calls themselves followers of Jesus Christ. But racism exists because of the sinful and fallen world in which we live. And sadly, it will not be totally eradicated on this side of heaven because of sin. We can look forward to a time in the future when there will be no racism. Revelation chapter 7 verses 9 to 10 gives us a glimpse of this. John writes, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne, and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. But because of sin, we have racism of various forms throughout the centuries, exemplified in blacks versus whites, Koreans versus Japanese, Chinese versus Filipinos, Jews versus Arabs, Europeans versus Arabs, Chinese versus Japanese, the English versus the French, the North Africans versus the South Africans, and then the list goes on. Only in Jesus Christ can true racial reconciliation be found, and we'll talk more about the issue of racism and the Bible in a future sermon. But my point is that in hot-button issues or in conflicts, 
everyone is shouting. No one is listening as everyone retreats to their perspective and their default positions. You say the racial issue is only an issue in America, and it's polarized because of their history. Well, let's bring it closer to home. What about the hotly debated topic of the anti-terrorism bill or the government's response to the COVID-19 pandemic in our country? Somehow we are so polarized that if you simply disagree with the government, then you must have broken the biblical principle to obey your government. Or if you support the government, then you must have broken the biblical principle to love and speak on behalf of those who are hurting. You see, sadly for many, arguments have turned into a zero-sum game, which means that there is a winner and there is a loser. In the shouting through our various communication methods where no one is listening, we forget that it's okay to disagree with the government's actions while at the same time to obey the rule of law and to pray for our government leaders, while all at the same time to be a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. All are not mutually exclusive. The reason I'm bringing this to mind is that in conflicts in the home among family members and even among close friends, sometimes the arguments and the conflicts are so deep that it seems like true reconciliation can never happen. For many, these conflicts in the homes are no different than fights in the world. We think it's a zero-sum game where there is one winner and there is one loser. We are looking and reaching for reconciliation. That's what we want. Note that I'm not talking about forgiveness. I'm talking about reconciliation. They are similar, but they are different. As Ed Jarrett puts it, reconciliation involves forgiveness, but it goes beyond forgiveness. When I forgive someone, there is no guarantee that we will have a restored relationship. It may well be that even after I have forgiven someone, that we still remain estranged. Reconciliation, however, restores the relationship. Forgiveness may be one-sided, but reconciliation requires both parties to be willing to participate in restoring the relationship. It is always possible and expected for me to forgive, but reconciliation will not be possible if the other party is not willing to participate. Simply put, one person can forgive. It takes two to reconcile. And because you and I can't get rid of our family, in family conflicts, we must work together towards reconciliation and not simply forgiveness. And it will take two sides to reconcile. I can forgive someone for acts done wrong to me, but I can also vow never to talk to them again. Think how hard that will be if it was in a family situation where a child vows, I'll never talk to my parents again, or I'll never talk to my sister or my brother again, or a parent says, I will never talk to my child again. That's unattainable. That's not practical. So if you don't reconcile in your fights, then family units will be dysfunctional. Families will have lots of messiness in them. And that's why we have family dysfunction today. 
because family members are unwilling to reconcile. But it goes beyond family. It goes to close friends and colleagues. Imagine if someone at work hurts you and you forgive them, but you vow, I will never talk to them again. I don't want to reconcile with them. That will make for a very cold work environment. Or perhaps in school, you get so angry at your groupmate, you say, I'll never talk to them. I can forgive them, but I never want to have anything to do with them. Think about how difficult it will be for the rest of the school year. Reconciliation is very different from simply forgiving someone. And so what are the steps we need to take? Or what are the elements that need to be present so that reconciliation can happen? Let's take a look as we continue our home series. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 33. We're going to take a look at verses 1 to 17. Genesis chapter 33, verses 1 to 17. Now, if you've been following along in the Jacob story, you'll know that we've been building up to this moment, the meeting of Esau and Jacob. What will it look like? Will there be a confrontation? Will there be a fight? Or will there be a happy reunion? After 20 years, have both brothers changed and matured that they're willing even to forgive one another? Let's take a look. Genesis chapter 33, I read from verses 1 and 2. Now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and there Esau was coming, and with him were 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. And he put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. As we talked about last week, Jacob had just had his wrestling encounter with the Lord. And Jacob is now a crippled man as he heads back to the land of Canaan. He's ready to meet his older brother Esau, who is now coming with 400 men. They have not seen or communicated with each other for over 20 years. I'm sure Jacob, like many of us, if we were in his shoes, would have had this moment play out in his mind for a long time. What type of reception will Esau give me? What can I expect? Now remember, the last time they met, Esau was very angry at his brother. He was ready to kill him for what he did. Jacob had impersonated him and through deception received the blessing of the firstborn from their father, Isaac. Jacob doesn't know if his brother will want to continue to take revenge. And Jacob is ready for the worst-case scenario to play out. And we see that through the action of dividing his own family. In this case, Jacob is prepared that if Esau were to attack, if Esau did not accept his peace offerings, that at least perhaps Rachel and Joseph would be able to escape being at the back of the group. You know, prior to this, we don't have any indication in the scriptural text that tells us that Jacob is sorry for what he did to his brother. We don't ever hear that Jacob is sorry for the deception he had a part in. So what is he thinking throughout these 20 years? Is he really sorry? We don't know. Well, until we get to verse 3. And Jacob doesn't tell us. He shows us. Look at verse 3. Then he crossed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times 
until he came near to his brother. Jacob went to the front of his family group and was the first one to go and meet Esau. But notice what he did. As he approached Esau, he bowed with head, touching the ground seven times. Now, it's not a simple bow where you are in an upright position and you just bend your waist. The Bible tells us, and the Bible makes it a point for us to know that he lowered himself to the ground. He got on all four and bowed his head to the ground. So we're talking about, as Jacob walks towards Esau, that he goes from an upright position onto his four, his hands and his knees, and then with head to the ground, he bows. And then he picks himself back up, and then he walks a little bit closer to Esau, and he does the same thing, where he gets to the ground on all fours, and then puts his head to the ground. And he bows before Esau, and then he gets up again, and he walks a few more steps towards Esau, and he does the same thing over again. Remember, he just had his hip dislocated. So imagine how painful this must have been for Jacob to do it seven times until he reached his brother Esau. What Jacob is showing here very vividly through action is that he is acknowledging that he is wrong. He is very sorry. And this is the first element that must be present in every true reconciliation. There is a need, number one, of the acknowledgement of wrong. Acknowledgement of wrong. When Jacob does this, he is in a position where if Esau were to attack, Jacob could not run. Jacob was submitting to whatever Esau decided. If Esau wanted to take a sword and lop off the head of Jacob, he could have done that. This position is a position of a man who is admitting that he is wrong, who is proclaiming that he is sorry, who is asking for forgiveness. This is a very important attitude when you want to reconcile with someone. There must be an acknowledgement of wrong. Unless there is an acknowledgement of wrong, true reconciliation won't happen. Each of the parties may say or think in their mind, well, I forgave the other person. I forgive the other party. But unless the offending party, or at least both sides, acknowledge that they have contributed to wrongs done, then the reconciliation process will not progress. Some may say, well, we shouldn't bring up the past. Let the past be past. And let's just forgive and make up. Now, while there's some truth to allowing the past to be past and not to continually bring up past hurts in the present, there must be a time where wrongs are admitted. Because if not, and the wrongs are not identified, invariably, if we say that we have reconciled, the past will come up again and rear its ugly head. Even if both sides make up, and they do not address the past, somewhere down in their friendship, somewhere along in their friendship journey, they will bring up the past again. Because one party or both parties may think, well, you know what? We never really dealt with the issue. And Satan, who loves to cause dissension, will often bring it to mind. 
In fact, the Bible tells us very clearly we need to confess to one another. If we have wronged the other person, it is an obligation of a follower of Jesus Christ to go to the other person and tell them, I'm sorry. It doesn't matter if you are a parent or a child. It doesn't matter if you're a boss or an employee. It doesn't matter if you're a teacher or a student. If you have done wrong, then the Bible says there must be an acknowledgement of that wrong, an asking of forgiveness, a saying of sorry. As hard as it may be, one must admit, one must address, and one must acknowledge the wrong for there to be true reconciliation. Now, if someone doesn't want to, quote-unquote, talk about it, and let's just forgive and move on, then they are not seeking true reconciliation. Every parent knows this to be true because their children are always fighting and they're always the referees. What do you tell your children when you are refereeing one of their fights? Of course, you tell them as you pull them apart, say sorry to one another. And they will say sorry because they're afraid of you. But if you leave it at that, just simply to say sorry, then you have not addressed the problem. An experienced parent will add, why are you sorry? Tell your sibling why you are sorry. The sibling, although perhaps reluctantly, will say, I'm sorry for hitting you. I'm sorry for destroying your project. I'm sorry for eating your food. I'm sorry for shouting at you. Because by asking the why of the sorry, it gets to the root level of the issue. And that's true in history as well. After Germany lost World War II, it started its road towards national reconciliation with the rest of the world when it disavowed fascism and apologized for the atrocities of the Nazis and apologized for their part in the Holocaust. Japan did the same thing when it disavowed imperialism and became a pacifist nation. If you never deal with the past and acknowledge wrongs, then there is no true reconciliation. Even in salvation, the Bible is very clear. We must first acknowledge that we are sinners, that we have not lived up to the standards of holiness the Lord requires of us before we can be reconciled to Him by accepting His free gift of salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 is very clear about all of us being in the wrong as sinners. But that's why so many people don't accept Christ. They don't think they have done anything wrong that would cause them to deserve hell. There is no admission of wrong. Look at verse 4 with me. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. To our surprise, Esau ran up and embraced his younger brother Jacob and hugged. And notice what the Bible says, they both wept. These are genuine emotions that are being displayed. And in his action, without any words, Esau shows another element of true reconciliation. Number two, a willingness to forgive. Willingness to forgive. If you were in Esau's shoes, and having a brother or sibling do what Jacob did, would you be willing to forgive so easily even after 20 years? Would you have so easily forgiven without Jacob even saying a word of sorry? 
As I think about myself, I wonder if I would say, well, Jacob, before I hug you, what do you have to say for yourself? Or let me hear it, Jacob. Sorry, S-O-R-R-Y. Say it slowly. Say it with meaning. Say it with feelings. Okay, now I can forgive you. Let's hug. The Bible says, before a word is spoken, Esau already hugged Jacob. Both are weeping, indicating Esau's heart and willingness to forgive. I know about fights. I've mediated many of them. I've been involved in many of them myself. And the first words spoken are the hardest to break the ice of conflict. But Esau, to his credit, and the working of God in his heart, allowed him to be willing to forgive Jacob. I'm sure it must have taken years for Esau to come to this place where he is willing to forgive Jacob. You know, people who think that deep hurts can be resolved in days or weeks or even months are, are really kidding themselves. It often takes years. Sometimes as Christians, we just say, well, just get over it. God will make it all right. Just forgive. But we should at least acknowledge and give space for a person to come to a place of the willingness to forgive to the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. You know, we're never told why Esau comes with 400 men. We, we don't know. Could it be that Esau really came to confront Jacob? Maybe Esau came to meet Jacob to push Jacob away, perhaps thinking, here comes Jacob now to come and claim his inheritance to get my stuff. But God was slowly working in Esau's heart and those waves of flocks of gifts softened his heart and showed that Jacob had changed. And then perhaps in this last sign of contrition on the part of Jacob with his continual bowing and getting up and bowing until he reached him, perhaps that completely changed the heart of Esau. I don't know when Esau's heart was changed, but it certainly did before he embraced Jacob. These 400 men he brought with him are no longer mentioned after this embrace. And so I personally don't think they were there to give a welcome party for Jacob. But regardless, when Esau's heart changed, the key element is his willingness to forgive Jacob. Notice that there is no condition for his forgiveness. Esau doesn't ask Jacob what he will do to make up for what he's done before he will forgive him. Right? In a mediation to resolve conflict, if there is no interest in forgiving one another and working towards resolution or settlement or a solution, then it's really an exercise in futility. It's really a, a waste of time and that attitude of forgiveness is not there or willingness to forgive is not there. I've talked to a lot of people who tell me they want to reconcile with their spouse or their children or their friend. And one of my first questions to them is, are you willing to forgive? Before any conditions are set, are you willing to forgive? Because if the answer is no, or maybe depending on what they do or what they say or what they offer, I will tell them, come back to me when you're willing to forgive. Because if you're not, then there will not be true reconciliation. Remember, reconciliation isn't a negotiation. Because if it's a negotiation, then where do you even start? 
How do you truly compensate someone for something wrong you've done? If you think about it, it's really difficult to compensate someone. Right? If I break someone's arm, whether by accident or purposely, how do you compensate for lost wages? How do you compensate if they have a sports scholarship to give them scholarship in return? Well, you may say, well, give them money. What about time lost? They had to go to the doctors and rehabilitation. The more you think about it, the more you realize one can never fully compensate to an equal level when wrongs have been done. Think about all those individuals who are jailed but exonerated. They were wrongly incarcerated. And they lost 30, 40, 50 years of their lives because of a wrong accusation. And perhaps they're exonerated because of new DNA evidence. If the government made restitution for a wrong conviction, how much is enough? Is 100,000 enough? Is 1 million enough? Is 10 million enough? Is 100 million enough? Does money really make up for what has been lost? Of course not. Perhaps they never saw their children grow up. Or they spent the prime time of their life in prison and now they're in their 70s or their 80s, near the end of their life. The bitterness will still be there, even with restitution. The bitterness will still be there unless you are willing to forgive. In true reconciliation, there can't be conditions on your willingness to forgive. We take our example from the Lord God. In the same way, God is willing to forgive all people without preconditions, without conditions for what you may do. There are no conditions for how you will continue to live after I forgive you. His forgiveness of our sins is not based on what we have done for Him or will do for Him. His forgiveness of our sins is based on His grace. When He offered forgiveness of sins through His Son, Jesus Christ, who would serve as the propitiation for our sin, there are no conditions. It's completely by His grace. It is a free gift. We as sinners of all varieties and of all types are simply to accept. Praise be to God for this wonderful example of how we can be willing to forgive as we work towards the road to true reconciliation. Verse 5 to 7. And he lifted his eyes and saw the women and children and said, Who are these with you? So he said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maidservants came near, they and their children, and bowed down. And Leah also came near with her children, and they bowed down. Afterward, Joseph and Rachel came near, and they bowed down. When Esau asked Jacob about the people who were with him, Jacob replied that these are members of his family. And notice how he dresses himself to Esau. He calls himself your servant. And then as his family is introduced to Esau, each one of them bows down to him from wives to children. There is an attitude of humility displayed, perhaps instructed by Jacob, but more likely they implicitly knew what to do. In these actions, we see the third essential element for 
true reconciliation. And that must be number three, an attitude of humility. The cultivating, the exhibiting of an attitude of humility. As they say, attitude is everything. And it's even more true when you're trying to come together in reconciliation. All the right things can be said. All the right things can be done. But if the attitude is wrong, then there will not be reconciliation. You see, when tensions are so high and everything is at stake and on the line, it's not a time to cop an attitude. And this attitude of humility is to be exhibited on both sides. If the offended party makes the offending party, the one who wants to apologize, feel very bad through their attitude, then it's very likely that the offending party may rather simply walk away. Think about the story of the prodigal son. How did the son approach the father with humility saying he was willing to work as a servant? But how does the father welcome his wayward son back? with great warmth and love, as if nothing happened. This would have required great humility on his part. Can you imagine if the son is apologizing to his father, and his father is a scowl on his face, and he says, repeat your story again. Tell me all the wrong things you've done. Do you know how you've hurt my family? And he goes on and on and on and on. It could be that in this story of the prodigal son, the prodigal son says, you know what? It's not worth it. Maybe I'll go find someone else who'll take care of me. But because of the warmth and the love that the father shows, the son returns and there is a genuine reconciliation and a restoration. That requires great humility on the part of the father as well. How does Jesus welcome us back when we have erred? When we confess our sins to Him, does He say, Ah, those confessions, they're all hypocritical. You don't really mean them. You continue to sin and sin. Or He comes back and tells us, There you go again, doing the same thing over and over again. If that was His attitude, do you think we would come back to Him often? It would be well within his right. It would be true in what he says. But he doesn't do that. He welcomes us back. It requires a lot of humility to accept an apology just as much as it is to give the apology. I want you to listen to that again. It takes as much humility to accept an apology as it is to give one. Because in accepting that apology, you are essentially giving up your right to get what you believe is fair compensation for the wrong that has been done to you. For true reconciliation to occur, there must be an attitude of humility on both parties. Look at verses 8 to 9. Then Esau said, What do you mean by all this company which I met? And he said, These are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. When Esau asks Jacob what is the meaning of him receiving so many waves of livestock as gifts, Jacob tells Esau that they are for 
him, to find favor. In other words, for you to forgive me, Esau. But Esau's response is one I really like. Underline it or highlight it in your Bibles. Circle that phrase. He says to Jacob, you keep it all. I don't need it. I have enough. I love that in verse 9. He says to Jacob, I have enough. I don't need these things. Esau is content. Esau is settled of heart. I want to remind you of just how angry Esau was 20 years ago. In chapter 27, verse 36, remember what he said in reference to Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright and now look, he has taken away my blessing. He is angry. Jacob took away everything, many things that I have. And now Esau is able to say to Jacob, I don't need anything from you. I have enough. God has also made it up to Esau as well. God didn't abandon Esau, as he is also the grandson of Abraham and the son of Isaac. God also blessed him. But what's important is that Esau came to a contentment of heart. And he said, I don't need these things. And that's why Esau didn't have to accept these gifts as a condition to make right with Jacob. You see, reconciliation will happen when you have a settled heart. As hard as it is, especially if you have been deeply wounded or deeply hurt, with the help of the Holy Spirit, you will be able to come to this place of settlement. And that's the fourth element that's needed for true reconciliation to happen. It is contentment with a settled heart. Contentment with a settled heart. This is a very difficult principle to live out. Where in your seeking of justice will you stop and say, you know what? I look at all of the blessings in my life and I realize, you know what? I am settled. I am content. That's very hard to do. Or in your rage of, and perhaps even righteous anger once you've been wronged, for you, as you seek justice to say, God has blessed me in other ways. I am content. It's, it's very hard to get to that place. But listen also, I'm not justifying people doing wrong things and then expecting the other party to be content. Right? I know how people will abuse these biblical principles. They'll say, oh, look, well, I wronged you. You should forgive me because you should be content with how God blesses you. That would be the wrong application. That would be looking through the lenses of justifying your wrong actions. Don't abuse this principle. This principle is on the part of the one who has been wronged. Jacob was punished for what he did. Jacob was punished by God. He never saw his beloved mother again before she died. He lost out on 20 years of his life living away from the promised land. But Esau was content with life. After 20 years, he came to a settled place in his heart and he was able to reconcile with Jacob. And he's able to say to Jacob, I don't need these things. If you're looking for reconciliation to restore what you have lost monetarily, to make up what you have lost position-wise, or to make up what you've lost time-wise, then you will not find it. 
it will be very hard to make up for those losses. Listen carefully. Restoration and reconciliation should not be focused on restitution, but in the restoration of relationships. Let me repeat that. There's a lot of R's in there. Restoration and reconciliation should not be focused on restitution, but in the restoration of relationships. This is why a content, settled heart leads to reconciliation. That's how the Lord deals with us. If the Lord will only reconcile with us, if we make proper restitution, then there is no way we will ever be reconciled to Him. It will never happen. Because it is impossible for us to do enough good works to make up for our bad works. That's why good works never saves. You cannot make up for something that is irreversible, where when one sin leads to death, how do you make up? How do you undo that sin? It's impossible to make restitution as it relates to salvation. That's why for the Lord, He reconciled us to Himself through His Son, Jesus Christ. Not for us to make it up to Him through works, but so that we can accept His free gift, and it is through the sacrifice of His Son that God's wrath is appeased in what we call propitiation, so that we, without having to do anything, can be in relationship with Him. Not by works, the Bible tells us, so that no one can boast. He desires in His reconciliation with us for us to call Him Father and for Him to call us children, for Him to call us friends. If you still think restitution is central to reconciliation, let me ask you something. If you cheat on your wife with another woman and have another child, how will you make restitution? How will you make it up? Think about that. If you cheat someone out of money or steal from someone, which then causes them a series of misfortunes in their life, how will you make it up to them? If you cheat in school and get the glory that another student deserves, how will you make it up to them years later? Can you reverse time? While restitution is important, and the Bible teaches us to do it as followers of Jesus Christ, the point is the central focus of true reconciliation should not be about restitution. It is about the restoration of relationship. It's about relationships. And that should challenge us to look at our own blessings and to come to a place of contentment and say that I have it good. Even when these wrongs have been done to me, I have it good. What am I fighting for? Look at verses 10 to 11. But Jacob said, No, please. If I have now found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand. Inasmuch as I have seen your face as though I have seen the face of God and you were pleased with me. Please take my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. So he urged him and he took it. Jacob says to Esau, no, please take it. 
as a sign of our reconciliation. Please accept these gifts from me. And notice what Jacob says as well. Because God has been gracious to me. Look at verse 11. I have enough. Jacob is saying, I'm not here to fight for your things, Esau. I have enough as well. Remember, even though he received the blessings of the firstborn, which Isaac himself told Esau, it's irreversible. Jacob left with nothing, but he came back with many things. And so he could have rightfully claimed a lot of things. But he says to Esau, I do not need what I am entitled to. Take it. I'm not here to get your things. I have enough. So at the urging of Jacob, Esau accepts Jacob's gifts, even though he also didn't really need it. Do you know why it often takes years of fighting and not talking to each other before deep fights and conflicts are resolved? Because often it takes years or when people get to an old age or sometimes, sadly, at their deathbed where they will come to the realization, what in the world was I fighting for? I was blessed in so many other ways. It takes years for people to find contentment with their lot in life. It takes years for people to come to a settled position in their heart to see that even though they were wronged, it didn't really cost them much because God blessed them in other ways. That's why often you see older people, grandfathers and grandmothers, they come to that place in their life or they say, you know, I'm old already. I have a great family. I have great grandchildren. And I look at my life and I wonder, why am I fighting with my relatives? And only sadly then are they willing to reconcile. Even sadder is when there are men and women who are in their 70s, 80s, and 90s who are still fighting over things they don't need to fight about, over things that if they were to get it, would not be able to enjoy so what are you fighting for is the question I ask you. Sadly, there are, there are families who fight over 10,000 pesos, $200 when both families who are fighting are multimillionaires. If you're looking for justice and fairness in your fight, you will not want to come to reconciliation. You will not desire to reconcile. You will continue to grow bitter. You will continue to look for fairness and you will not find it when will you be able to say I want to stop fighting I am content I have enough I'm settled in my heart verses 12 to 14 then Esau said let us take our journey let us go and I will go before you but Jacob said to him my Lord knows that the children are weak and the flocks and the herds which are nursing are with me and if the men should drive them hard one day, all the flock will die. Please let my Lord go on ahead before his servant. I will lead on slowly at a pace which the livestock that go before me and the children are able to endure until I come to my Lord in Seir. From a good heart, Esau offers to journey together with Jacob to provide support for him as they head back down south. But Jacob says they can't go together. They can't travel at the pace that he believes Esau may expect 
because his children are young and his flocks are still young and nursing. And Jacob tells Esau to go on ahead. I'll just follow from behind and I'll meet up with you later. Now that's going to require a lot of trust on the part of Esau because someone who is untrusting may still think, I wonder what Jacob is up to. Yes, we made up and now he wants to do his own thing. But look how Esau responds. Verse 15. And Esau said, Now let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. Out of the goodness of his heart of hospitality, Esau says, Okay, if that's the case, let me leave some of my guys to help you. Now, put yourself in Jacob's shoes. If you're Jacob, would you refuse Esau again? I probably wouldn't. I'd say, well, that's a good compromise. You go on ahead, but okay, I'll accept that you leave some of your men. But Jacob says, I don't need them. And he says, if I find favor in your eyes, just go on ahead with all of your men. Jacob is saying, if you trust me, just go on ahead. We'll meet together. Is there trust? Look at verse 16 and 17. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. And Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth, built himself a house, and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkoth. What you see in this parting exchange is the fifth element of true reconciliation. There is a readiness to trust again. Number five, a readiness to trust again. That is true reconciliation. Esau trusts that Jacob won't be playing games now as he returns home. Jacob trusts that Esau would not exact revenge with a change of mind as they agree to meet up later. You see, if there is no trust after you have reconciled, then it is not a true reconciliation. That's the very point of reconciliation, so that you can restore the relationship to a position of trust. In the same way, that's how the Lord treats us. When He forgives us, the Bible tells us He trusts us. He remembers our sins no more. He doesn't use our sins to condemn us again. And there is a similar expectation on His part when we are reconciled to Him. He should be able to trust us as Christians to live out our lives in such a way that He expects. And yet, how many times do we break that trust And yet every time He forgives us, every time He restores our relationship, the Bible tells us He trusts us fully to live out redemptive lives, to live out lives of Christ-likeness. If you don't think you can trust again as you reconcile with someone, I want you to think about how the Lord treats us when He forgives us, when He reconciles us to Himself. You know, my friends, I'm not sure what relationships you are in, whether you have relationships that are broken in your families or amongst friends, between husband and wives, between children and parents, between cousins, between uncles and aunts. I'm not sure. But let me encourage you as followers of Jesus Christ for you to work towards reconciliation. Just as 
God Himself reconciled us to Him through our Savior, Jesus Christ, His Son. I know it is very difficult to acknowledge wrong, but the acknowledgement of wrong must be a part of the reconciliation process. We as Asians, we don't like to talk about the things we do, but it's important that we bring it to bear and bring it to mind so that those wrongs can be addressed, at least recognized, so that Satan can't bring it up in the future to cause further dissension. We should be willing to forgive just as Christ forgave us without any conditions, even if the restitution isn't what we expect it to be. Do we cultivate a willingness to forgive so that the restoration of relationships can happen? Do we cultivate an attitude of humility, both on the one receiving forgiveness and on the part of the one asking for forgiveness? Do we have a contentment with a settled heart, knowing even though we have been wronged and we have been hurt deeply, that God has blessed us in so many ways, that we are seeking not for restitution, we are seeking for the restoration of relationships. Can we come to that point? Can we be ready to trust again? Just as God trusts us to live out a Christ-like life. Look to Jesus, my friends, as an example if you find that reconciliation is very difficult. Look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. I can only encourage you to reconcile in your broken relationships, but imagine when true reconciliation happens and the world sees it, it is one of the most effective and most beautiful testimony to an unbelieving world of what Jesus Christ can do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for how you exemplify through your Son, Jesus Christ, what true reconciliation is. I pray that you would work in the hearts of these men and women who are listening and watching. That if there are relationships that are broken and the hearts are so deep, that the Holy Spirit would work in hearts to see to it that they desire reconciliation. That in the restoration of relationships between brothers and sisters in Christ, that the world will see and desire to know more about this Jesus who can bring reconciliation to the world, not just between two people or two races, but who can bring reconciliation between mankind and God the Father himself. May the Holy Spirit continue to convict and teach. May we learn the lessons you want us to learn. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.